welcome to the conversation at airsafe.com. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Curtis, and we're pleased today to have with us Leslie Kane, a noted author of several books, including the 2010 book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. Uh, before that, uh, she, in 1994, co-authored the book, uh, Burma's Revolution of the Spirit, The Struggle for Democratic Freedom and Dignity. And also, she's a, an investigative journalist who's been published around the world in newspapers like the Boston Globe, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Bangkok Post, International Herald Tribune, and the Globe and Mail up in Canada. She's also appeared on television numerous times, including on the documentary Secret Access, UFOs in the Record, as well as on the Colbert Report and the Dylan Radigan Show. Uh, Leslie, uh, thanks for being with us here today. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I'm sure that my audience is going to be very appreciative of what you have to offer, specifically your expertise when it comes to talking about UFOs. The kind of information about UFOs that's backed up by unimpeachable witnesses, as well as by formal government documentation, not just from the U.S. government either. Now, in your 2010 book, which of course was a New York Times bestseller, and that's probably where a lot of the audience uh, first heard about you, uh, Leslie, you've been an investigative reporter for quite some time and have written extensively, not just on UFOs, but on a variety of other issues. But what I'd really like to focus on is that you took an approach with your book where you weren't just stating your opinion, you weren't stating the opinions of others. You were actually going on official documented evidence of UFO events in the U.S. and around the world and backing it up with, with witnesses who were, like the title says, pilots, generals, other people who are unimpeachable with respect to their professional record and with respect to the trust people have in what they say. And what have you say, would you say has been the effect after the book's been out for three years now? Has this led to a real change in attitude with respect to UFOs? Well, it's hard to gauge the uh, effect the book has had. I've received numerous emails from people in the aviation world and in the scientific world who have been personally affected by the book. But in terms of a, the bigger picture, I can't say that a whole lot has changed. Um, I think it's the book has done very, very well. It continues to do well. A lot of people are, are reading it and a lot of skeptics and people who have never been able to take the subject seriously before have been really affected by it and their positions have changed because of the approach I took, which is the one you described. And not only did I actually, you know, interview the, the highest level people around on this topic, but I also invited them to actually write their own chapters in my book. So half of the book is, is, is actual chapters submitted by the pilots and generals and government officials of the title. So it really is a very authoritative approach to the subject. We don't draw any conclusions about what these things are because that is not known. They are anomalous objects. They're unidentified objects as the acronym states and that's all. That's the way it is. So I think um, the issue of how these objects affect aircraft and how they affect uh, safety particularly is a very important one and it's a theme that runs throughout the book. So I'm really happy to be able to discuss it with you. Now, I'd like to focus a little bit on what you just said, that is, objects or events or phenomena which actually affect the performance of the aircraft. So we're not just talking about events where a pilot might see something in the distance and they say to themselves, oh, wow, that looks like a UFO. You're talking about situations where the aircraft was affected and it had a potential impact on safety. 
Absolutely. And the three, you know, the three main categories for those types of events are events in which there are near misses. So and very high speed maneuvers by the UAP and when they're we call them UAP sometimes by the way as opposed to unidentified it stands for unidentified aerial phenomena because a lot of the scientific community don't like the acronym UFO for obvious reasons so um, I just like to sort of make that known that if I say UAP uh, that's the same thing basically. Um, but but I, what, I, what I wanted to say was that there are situations where a pilot will actually make a sudden turn or dive if, a, if he sees an object approaching his aircraft very quickly. That's something that's having an actual physical effect on the aircraft. An even more common effect is when the navigation equipment goes out. The flight control systems, radar operations, radio communications can be interfered with. Uh, a lot of things within the cockpit can malfunction due to what's probably some kind of electromagnetic radiation that's having an effect on the aircraft. Usually this, the instruments all come back on once the object disappears or goes away. But if, they, you know, if planes get too close to these objects, that's often what happens. And that can be dangerous, of course, to lose your equipment. And the other element of it that's really important is just the distraction that it causes among the cockpit crew and the pilots and anybody else who's dealing with this phenomenon. If it's close to the aircraft, and sometimes it's been reported actually making circles around a plane or pacing right alongside an airplane as it flies along, these are going to be kind of disturbing and distracting events. And the problem being that since pilots and crew are not informed about this situation because it, it has such a stigma against it, they can be unnerved and distracted by it. And, of course, if, if, if the aviation community took a different approach, that wouldn't be an issue. But it is an issue as it stands now. I'd like to point out that for those in the audience who are professional pilots, they, of course, know this. But uh, many people in the audience assume that everything about an aircraft flight for an airliner, for instance, is recorded. Uh, we've all heard the black boxes, the cockpit voice recorder, and the digital flight data recorder. But neither one of those records visuals from outside the aircraft. So literally, if there was something distracting the, the pilots on the outside of the aircraft, but didn't have any effect on the instruments, there would be no independent record of what the pilots saw. So, for instance, if you have the example you gave earlier, a pilot making an evasive maneuver based on what he or she saw outside of the window, uh, if you look at the tapes afterwards, let's say there was an accident subsequent to that, if you looked at the tapes afterwards, there would be no indication of anything on the outside. So you might have a head-scratching situation where the investigative authorities may fall back on something more conventional. For example, and specifically the example of the Egypt Air event back in 1999, where off the U.S. coast, uh, 767 inexplicably uh, dived into the ocean and crashed and everyone was killed. And the NTSB investigation had as one of the probable causes uh, that the pilot deliberately flew the aircraft into the water. Now, there was no direct evidence of this, no suicide note, nothing said on the cockpit voice recorder that was specific to that. But I ventured an opinion then, and I still do now, that there could have been something outside of the aircraft, who knows, a meteor, bright light, oncoming aircraft, or whatever, that caused the pilot to make an unusual, abrupt maneuver. But we have no evidence from that accident of something that may have been outside causing that to happen. So it can't be ruled in, can't be ruled out, from my opinion. And getting back to the subject of your book, you're talking about events where not just... 
someone saw something, but there was actual events where things were affected. But how many of those resulted from your research in formal reports going to the equivalent of the FAA or the NTSB in the U.S. or, or elsewhere? Probably hardly any of them. I mean, uh, part of the problem is, uh, as you know, that the FAA does not have reporting forms for these kinds of incidents for pilots. So they have no way to report them. And the FAA manual actually instructs pilots and crews that to, to actually take any reports of anomalous or unexplainable objects that they see to take them to civilian organizations. There are two that they mention in their manual. So they're actually telling their pilots and crew, the FAA, we, the FAA, do not want to hear anything about sightings that you might have of these objects. And they even state, even if the events are life-threatening, they say that, even if the incidents are life-threatening, you're not to report them to the FAA, but you can go to the local police force, which I think is a little bit odd because if they're in the sky at 35,000 feet when these things happen, what police are they supposed to go to? But in any case, so pilots are definitely, they get the message there's not only is the FAA not interested in their reports, but there's also the stigma around this topic. There's the fear of ridicule and fear of job security and all the things that, that they feel are threatened by any reports of this. So fortunately, we have this organization, NARCAP, the National Aviation Reporting Center on Anomalous Phenomenon, which is an extremely excellent group of aviation experts and scientists which have provided a platform or an organization to which pilots can report their sightings. And I, I would love at some point, Todd, to give out information uh, to the listeners about that the, the, the study that they've done and the reporting forms that they have, etc. But the point being, there is that organization that they can go to, but most pilots don't know about it. So they're really stuck out there with no way to, to report the sightings plus the fear of being ridiculed and having some kind of negative effect if they do it. And for the benefit of our audience, I've actually put together a bit of a resource in airsafe.com. If you go to the page ufo.airsafe.com, you will have links to NARCAP and other organizations where you can send in a report. To make a long story short, there are databases of information that the FAA has, some of which is open to the public, some of which isn't. And it's not necessarily an evil intent on their part. Uh, for example, if you submit a report that doesn't fit the criteria of a minor incident, serious incident, or an accident, if it doesn't fit into one of the reportable categories, it may be taken up by the FAA, but it may not be put into the database. And this isn't just UFO-related reports. You can have all sorts of minor damaging incidents to aircraft, which may not end up in the public databases. So, again, without trying to say the FAA has evil intent, We're, we are talking about a large bureaucratic organization that has publicly available data, but it has rules about what data ends up in the database. So again, I would encourage those in the aviation community to submit them to whatever organization you think and feel might benefit from them, but just don't expect it to end up in a public database. Right, which maybe the pilots would actually, the reporters would prefer anyway. And, you know, they don't want it to necessarily. And, and let me just mention, too, that NARCAP has a very extensive reporting form, you know, based on very competent aviation people who have put it together. And they honor confidentiality. They assume that most re people reporting these events will not want them to be made public. And that's a very important aspect of the organization, that they completely respect the confidentiality of people reporting 
events. They also just recently put out an excellent report uh, called Recommendations to Pilots from NARCAP on what to do and what not to do if you have a near encounter with an unidentified aerial phenomenon. And it's very interesting and, and fun to read. It's just a few pages, and I would recommend that anybody who flies, both passengers and crew and pilots, take a look at it. It's, it's really quite, quite uh, revealing, and it's, on the, it's right on the homepage of the NARCAP website. I highly recommend that, that people do that. In fact, I'll make a point to put a link to that on uh, the ufo.airsafe.com website. And having gone through that document myself, some of the advice there any pilot would recognize as common sense advice. For example, if you see something and you're flying the aircraft, the first three things you should do is aviate, navigate, and communicate. That is the primary thing that you do in any sort of unusual situation. So basically, they're suggesting that pilots revert to their training, at least initially, when it comes to dealing with something like this. And again, we're talking about all kinds of unusual phenomena. Uh, in spite of the fact that aviation has been happening for over a century, not everything is known about what happens in the sky. There are still weather phenomena, for instance, that comes up on rare occasions that's not very well understood. Sometimes they're observed by pilots, sometimes they're not. And if one does come across this sort of thing, even if your gut reaction is, my goodness, that's an object, you can't really make an assumption that it is. It could be something, until now, unobserved or not very well understood by the aviation community. So taking the time to put that report in could turn out to be the vital piece of information that allows the community to understand yet another thing about the mystery of the sky. Right. I think that's why the reporting is so important. It's not to, yeah, it's it's to, it's as a research tool. And the problem with these anomalous objects or whatever they may be, maybe they're not objects. And in fact, the pilots will often report them as a, a very, very bright light. Who's to say if that's an object or not? But you're right. I mean, if, if because we, we, we all lose, we all lose out by the fact that there is so much ridicule and stigma associated with this kind of topic that we don't get the research that we could get. We don't get the knowledge that we could gain from the reports that people could file if they did indeed file them. And I, it's just such a, a tragedy. I mean, I make the point in my book that pilots and, and their crews are really in a very, very unique position to learn, to study. It's almost like a it's sort of like a laboratory in the sky because they're so close to these objects. And these are objects that are seen from the ground by very, very credible people also. But when you're up in an airplane, you're closer. You can see them better. Plus, you're equipped with the knowledge that these people have that they're trained to recognize different types of of aircraft. So they at least know some some level of how to discriminate. As you say, they, we might not know everything about what's up there, but the pilots are very, very well trained to discern whether this is some kind of experimental aircraft or military aircraft or whatever, and they know how to pay attention and, and to what's out there. So it's just a great opportunity for us to learn a lot about what this phenomenon is, and we're losing out because there's no the they're not reported and it's a, it's just a, a very unfortunate situation and aviation is a community activity in the sense that there are a variety of groups of people who are involved who are intimately involved in aviation and who like pilots would be very well versed in what airplanes are supposed to look like how they're supposed to be configured when landing and taking off etc so for example if you have an airport where you may have hundreds or thousands of ramp workers mechanics uh, aircraft marshalers etc who are very familiar with aviation, very familiar with what should 
and should not be in the sky, they can very, very quickly pick out something that's very anomalous, perhaps hazardous, perhaps even a security risk, and, and would be willing to take steps to report it. And I say that in specific reference to what happened at O'Hare Airport in Chicago in 2006, when numerous people, pilots, ground workers, air traffic controllers, etc., saw an extremely anomalous object in close proximity to the airport, very near where the airplanes were taxiing on the ground. And although many people reported it, although it was very well known, it was reported in the worldwide media, there was really no action taken by Homeland Security, TSA, FAA, or anyone else. The only conclusion I could draw is that, for whatever reason, they thought, oh, this is a UFO. We're not going to touch this with a 10-foot pole. Five years after 9-11, in my opinion, I don't care what you think it may be. If you have dozens of people reporting that something is flying in restricted airspace around the biggest airport, one of the biggest airports, busiest airports in the world, you should do something about it. And the fact that none of the responsible organizations in government took positive steps to identify, investigate, explain, whatever, is a, is a travesty, in my opinion. I think another interesting point about that case that you just mentioned at O'Hare Airport in 2006 is also the fact that none of the witnesses would be were willing to go on the record about this case. Literally not one person was willing to give their name uh, in terms in their reports that they made. Some of them did make reports, and NARCOP, NARCOP did a very detailed study about this incident, interviewed many witnesses. I've talked to witnesses, but it, it's just another illustration of the fear that they feel about putting anything publicly out there about a sighting, even though so many other people saw it. They're still afraid. So I think that that's another important point about the O'Hare case is it illustrates that problem as well as the problem of the lack of investigation that goes on when a case happens, which is a serious safety hazard, and it's basically not dealt with just because the object was described as a UFO because it looked like a metallic disc-shaped object to people. And for those not familiar with the case, actually, it's another interesting fact about this object, which hovered over United Airlines Terminal for maybe five to eight minutes. It's hard to say exactly how long, but it's it hovered over there for quite a while. And suddenly, it shot straight up through a cloud bank. It was, it was, it was hovering just below a fairly dense cloud bank at about 1,800 feet. And suddenly it shot straight up through the cloud bank at a very rapid speed and cut a clean hole through the cloud bank so that you could actually, those directly underneath who weren't looking at it from an angle could see blue sky on the other side of the cloud bank. It was as if somebody took a cookie cutter and just went right through that cloud bank, very crisp edges. So these people who were watching this knew that we don't have airplanes that can do that. It went extremely fast. So what do you do? You call it a UFO. And that creates a lot of problems. And not only do the witnesses face potential ridicule, but the official agencies aren't interested in investigating it. And that's, then it sort of dies after, after that. One suggestion I would make to the aviation community and even the passenger community out there uh, we have literally in our hands, most passengers, most airline workers have in their hands the tools to communicate with the entire world. You have your mobile phone. You have access to YouTube and everything else out there. Even if you don't take a photograph of something, even if you just saw something, 
it would be to your benefit and to the benefit of the community as a whole to somehow or another record this. Write it down, send an email to the organizations we talked about earlier, or even do uh, your own little self-video, your witness report of what you saw. Now, uh, will that by itself be the thing that uncovers the secret of what went on? I don't know. But I, I'd have to say to myself, if we had several hundred people giving their eyewitness testimony shortly after they saw this thing and posting them on blog posts and Twitter and YouTube and whatnot, that that itself, collectively, would be useful evidence. Because although eyewitness testimony has its drawbacks, the fact that you have the perspective of several different people from several different angles could give a third-party investigative authority some chance of figuring out what went on. So you don't have to have a video. You don't have to have a photo. What you have to have is your own uh, experience. Share that with, with the world. It's a great suggestion. I mean, I just was thinking, too, of people that have iPhones. They all have recording devices in them. Even better would be if people could talk into the machine as they were looking at the object and kind of do a real-time description of it and, and talk it talk through their sighting, basically. It would be fantastic, too. If we had a collection of those, I don't think anybody could argue with the validity of the, of the situation. Well, if people are having a hard time figuring out how that could work, let me just give you an example that pretty much the entire audience remembers. You remember the miracle on the Hudson when the U.S. Airways A320 hit a bunch of birds out of LaGuardia and landed in the Hudson River. You had passengers on, on ferry boats taking pictures, tweeting them around the world instantly. You had various cameras from various government institutions around the Hudson River that happened to catch pictures of it. You had bunches of information before any news camera came on the scene. If something happens, if it's unusual, don't hesitate. Pull out what you have, start recording, start taking pictures, start doing something. I second that. That would be just fantastic. If, and people do ask me all the time, why, with all the cell phones, why, aren't, why don't we have more photographs? An interesting aspect of the O'Hare case also is that there supposedly was a photograph. The, uh, we have actually the transcript of the tape where the uh, United Airlines manager called up the FAA tower to report the incident, to ask if they could pick it up, if they were seeing it. And she tells the person there that there was a photo taken, uh, that there was a photo of this object. We never know. We don't know what happened to it. It never surfaced. But she obviously had some knowledge of somebody who probably took out their cell phone and took a photo. One of the problems is the photos don't often come out very well when something is distant, especially at night. So I think your suggestion of people actually filing reports immediately after it happens, making notes, is, is really just as valid, perhaps more important than a photograph, because the photographs often don't come out. Obviously, if you can do both, that's the best. You just mentioned something <laughs> that made uh, me um, remind myself of uh, part of your background. You were one of the founding members of the Coalition for the Freedom of Information. And if you could tell us a bit about that and how that might dovetail in with the subject we're talking about here, I think that would be helpful. Okay, well, it doesn't dovetail that well specifically with the issue of aviation safety, but it does with the whole issue of information, people's right to information and not having this, this sort of the stigma on around everything, which includes government's withholding of information. And I, uh, I was one of the co-founders of this coalition back in the year 2000, but it was focused on attacking one particular case involving a UFO and conducting a Freedom of Information Act effort that would go way beyond what the average citizen can do. 
because we had a law firm working with us. We had the resources to hire attorneys and to hire uh, private research firms and all kinds of great people to really push this forward. It was, a, it was about a case that occurred in 1965 in, in uh, Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. People can look up the case if they want. And it was a crash of some kind of an object, an acorn-shaped object that crashed in, in Pennsylvania and was taken away by or the Army. That's in a, it in a nutshell. And we knew that NASA had some information that was relative to the search terms that we sent NASA. NASA came back with us to us and said, no, we don't have any documents responsive to your request. We happen to know that they did because we had already had them on file. So that sort of opened a door for us to pursue a more vigorous kind of investigation with NASA and basically which led to a lawsuit because they kept uh, resisting providing information that we knew they had. They would miss deadlines when they were supposed to come up with information. So we ended up filing a lawsuit. It lasted many, many, many years. And we set, it settled in our favor. And um, it was a very interesting process to learn about how difficult it is for the average citizen to acquire information for, through the Freedom of Information Act, even when it's theirs under the law, when it's their right to have that information. The system needs to be reformed, I guess is the word. So that was really one of the most important aspects of what our group was able to do. And the other function was just a, a way for me to work with a, a, a coalition of people to try to elevate this topic and turn it into a more serious one at the level that we're talking about it today and try, to kind of to try to dispel the sort of, you know, sensationalistic silly aspects of it, the uh, conspiracy theories and the extraterrestrial beings and all the stuff that the general public kind of has to, has associates with it, which is why there's such a stigma. So part of the function of this group and a number of the people involved with the group are people that have contributed to my book. We've basically just been trying to bring a more serious uh, tone to the whole thing and to, to uh, get journalists more involved and get the scientific community and the political establishment more involved in taking it seriously. Well, clearly uh, some of the members of the airsafe.com audience would be able to contribute as factual reports and eyewitness reports of what they've seen. And by the way, uh, even if it happened years ago, if you have something, a story out there, something you want to share with groups like NARCAP, by all means do so. But if the audience wanted to be more involved, that is, more directly involved with trying to get to the bottom of what the FAA may know or what NASA may know. What organizations like yours uh, do you recommend that they, they start with if they wanted to work with other people to try and get to the bottom of events they've witnessed or events other people have witnessed? It's a good question. I think most people that, uh, you, I mean, any citizen can just write a letter to the, the agency that they want to approach through the Freedom of Information Act and request specific documents. Uh, I don't know of any specific agencies that do it on a regular basis, especially in terms of this this issue, which so many people have, you know, sort of have funny feelings about. So I think that people can people can just do it. I mean, I've done it individually as a journalist before. And there are there's lots of information on the website for people wanting to use the Freedom of Information Act it, that explains how to go about it, which agencies to apply to, which divisions of various agencies to write to. So it, it, I, I recommend that people do it. And it's very exciting when you do get what you're looking for. And if anybody out there did have an event happen to them that they didn't report, perhaps they could write a, their own Freedom of Information Act letter 
requesting any information rate it depends how long how much time has passed but there should be radar tapes you know there could be if there's any conversations that you that people had with the ground control from the cockpit that maybe were taped but you can request information about your specific event any any you could request you know any radar data from on that particular day from the airport that you were closest to it can be very broad like that and hopefully you'll get something or you might learn something about another aircraft having seen the same thing you did and one other recommendation i would give in, in that regard if you're looking for information, let's say, from your own company, for if you're flying for a commercial airline, individual corporations have a completely different set of rules with respect to their data. Uh, basically, you can ask your company for information. They're under no obligation to give it to you. And asking for that information could be hazardous to your career. <laughs> so when it comes to looking for information within your own corporation or another private corporation, tread carefully and lightly is my only suggestion. That makes a lot of sense, and that, that everybody, and even with the commercial airlines, again, the people involved with the O'Hare incident have tread uh, treaded very lightly, because they certainly have been given the message by the airlines that they do not want this to be talked about, and uh, as you said, it can be hazardous to your career to have anything to do with this. I'm just hoping that that can change, and I think this should be treated. This issue of something unexplainable behaving in bizarre ways, uh, as you mentioned, can be equated to bird strikes or, you know, other very rare wind shear, volcanic dust reports, other very rare events that pilots do report, and they're given forms for it. And I would just hope that if they could be given forms for this as well, then maybe some of that ridicule and fear that people have about reporting it would dissipate. Well, speaking of uh, anomalous events like that, you mentioned one of my favorite subjects, uh, bird strikes aircraft. And those of you who've listened to uh, me talk over the years know that I've had quite a background in bird strikes. But one of the examples I like to give is that uh, there have been birds reported at stratospheric altitudes. And you would think, how can birds possibly fly at twenty or 30,000 feet? I don't know either. I'm not a wildlife biologist. But I do know those things happen. So you would think that, well, gee, if a pilot reports seeing a flock of birds at 20,000 feet. Would they be taken off flight status because clearly that's not possible? Well, it is possible. But the practical thing you mentioned earlier, reporting something anomalous, something unusual, if the people you're reporting it to aren't aware that those unusual things are possible, they might take that report not as evidence of something unusual happening, but of evidence that you're unfit for duty. So again, even reporting anomalous events, if it's not directly related to... Uh, the operation of that aircraft. That is, if it didn't affect the flight, there was no damage or anything like that. Reporting it just because you think it's an unusual thing to report. Think twice if you're reporting it to your own company. Absolutely. And if you do report it to NARCAP, of course, as I mentioned earlier, you can have complete confidentiality. So n there shouldn't be a risk to your career. In fact, NARCAP would be willing. They, they won't make it public. Even if your name's not associated with it, all the details of your report can be kept completely private by them. And at least it's on the record. At least NARCAP's able to do its research. And maybe someday it will be useful. So I, I just hope that people people do that. And when you mentioned about being taken off flight status, it reminded me of the a very famous case of the Alaska. It was in a, a Japan Airlines uh, jet flying over Alaska in 1986. 
And the the, the uh, gigantic object, which they call the UFO, was visible for a good half hour to them. And picked up on radar. It was a very, very well-documented case. And um, a former high-level FAA official has since gone on the record about it. But the po- interesting point is that the pilot for this case, his name was Tarachi, uh, did his duty when it, and, and, and reported it, filed a report on it. And, and he did extensive interviews with the FAA, et cetera. And he was taken off flight status for a good year just because he reported what he actually saw, which his two co-pilots witnessed as well. But since it wasn't supposed to be, exist... Uh, you know, they took him off flight status, thinking something was wrong with him. It's exactly the same issue you raised with the uh, birds. When it's not supposed to happen, if it's not possible, then you're going to be in trouble for reporting it. I'm sure that some of the people who will be listening to this will have their appetites whetted a bit. They'll say, gosh, this is very interesting. Where can I go to get decent information online about UFOs that's not uh, opinionated and not full of, of conspiracy theory? How do you figure out the good stuff from the junk when it comes to trying to find out more about this subject? It's very difficult, and I'm so glad you asked that question because I, as a journalist, it took me a long time to learn how to do that, and I had very in- informed people guide me in that process. So you, uh, you just have to sort of know the tone of something. I can recommend, I mean, I certainly recommend my book to people because I spent 10 years trying to create a book that would do just exactly what you said, that kind of distills the absolute best, most serious information and most well-documented information from around the world on the subject. And as I mentioned, the book has chapters written by a very interesting group of high-level people, so it's not just my book. And I think that's an excellent way to sort of get what the most serious and important information is. The NARCAP website is also excellent, they have all kinds of scientific reports that have been done by their, their organization. And there's an, there are other groups. There's the Center for UFO Studies, which was founded by J. Allen Hynek back in the 19, I think, 1970s, which has a large website with all kinds of papers and recommended books. There are some very excellent books that are out there that people can read. It would take me too long to explain it all. Um, but I'd be happy to, if anybody wants to contact me with any questions along those lines, um, if they want to go to my website or my Facebook page, I would be happy to respond to more in more detail of, for suggestions of places to go for information. You have to be extremely careful. And my website, by the way, is ufosontherecord.com. Uh, I can give more information to anybody that wants it. I'll have links to both her book and to her website on the page ufo.airsafe.com. And I do highly recommend that book and the NARCAP website. Fantastic amount of stuff on there. You could plow through there for hours and learn a bunch of things. So if you only had to go to two places, those are the first two I would suggest. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think, um, again, I take my hat off to the people who have come forward in my book. Among them, five generals who have written chapters in their own words about their own particular relationships to this. A lot of them have been involved with investigations on behalf of their governments, or they've actually been witnesses to very amazing encounters themselves with objects. So there's a whole range of writers who have, who have come forward. Another one is the former governor of Arizona, who was part of a, a massive sighting that took place in 1997 and he, uh, in Arizona, and he never talked about it for 10 years after leaving office. 
again, you just constantly see the problem that people have in going public with this, and it's just, it's just such a shame. And I'd like to speak just for a minute about uh, the event in Arizona. This is the famous Phoenix Lights event from 1997. And again, there's plenty of information online. You can get the background of it. But specifically, I want to talk about Governor Fife Symington, who is a, was a former fighter pilot in the Air Force, who gave a press conference shortly after the Phoenix Light event where he made light of the whole thing. He had someone trooped into the press conference dressed up as an alien, and he, his basic message was, come on, guys, quit uh, paying attention to this, go back to doing your regular thing. It was only after years had passed, he was no longer governor, where he came out and basically said, I saw it myself, and I knew right off the bat it wasn't a regular vehicle. He knew in his heart it was literally a UFO. But right. for whatever reason, he felt compelled to debunk it rather than accept it when it happened back in '97. And again, this is the kind of thing that happens throughout the aviation industry. That is, people have private experiences that they feel they can't take public for fear of losing face or losing their job. That's exactly right. And in this case, in Arizona, there were hundreds, if not thousands of people that saw this along with him. He still felt he couldn't do it. He couldn't go public about it. He felt he, there would have been so much ridicule against him and his staff that they wouldn't literally would not have been able to get their job done. And I've talked extensively with him about why he did what he did and, and all the issues around it. And I've actually been with him to the location where he saw the object and he described exactly how he went there, when it was, what he saw, etc. And he's an incredibly courageous man now, even though it is after the fact, nonetheless, he has come out and he's indicated the importance of having more of an official involvement with the subject. And what's so interesting to me is that he's somebody who really knows firsthand about the limitations of our, our lack of official policy, our lack of official relationship to the topic. He had no agency, no federal government assistance. He had no guidelines or didn't know what to do with this. There was nothing that tells him what to do, who to turn to. Uh, the federal government was not willing to help, et cetera, et cetera. So he really knows firsthand about the problems that we're facing and is a great supporter of uh, change. And he's written about that in the book as well, very eloquently. Uh, my opinion of the Phoenix Lights event is the following. If you have an event where thousands of people are seeing something that's more than a mile wide floating over a major American city, that at the very least, somewhere in the government, perhaps in NORAD, they would have known about this. So one of two things happened. Either NORAD and the U.S. Air Force and the military had zero clue as to what was going on, or they absolutely knew something was going on and are hiding the fact from us. Either way, it's a serious issue in that if we have spent, we collectively, the U.S. population, have spent hundreds of billions of dollars on a defense system that can't find something a mile wide over Phoenix, then we should revamp that system. Or if we have spent this money and this thing has happened, isn't it the responsibility of the government to at least share with the people what it is they saw and whether or not it represents a threat? Even if they say, uh, yeah. we don't know, that's, a, that's something that I think we should know. It's so elo you're so eloquent at, at really nailing what the issue is. I, I really appreciate hearing you talk about it. Um, and, of course, the thing is, it seems that our government does not want to, s to tell us that they don't know. And what's interesting when you mention that, they can just say, well, yes, this is what happened, but th they could have done the same thing at O'Hare. 
They could have said, well, we, we honor the reports of these witnesses and we cannot explain what this was. And the interesting thing is that other countries which have actual official agencies set up to investigate these events, they have independent agencies that do nothing else but investigate anomalous reports like this. Those countries officially state at press conferences and, and when they're asked that such and such a thing happened in such and such a case and we've investigated it. Here's the data and we cannot tell you what it was. It, this is what happened. A country like Chile or France, which are among the leaders in this uh, with their official agencies, would have thoroughly investigated the O'Hare incident and would have provided the information to the general public and would have probably, unless they did figure out what it was, but if they didn't, they would have been willing to state, we cannot explain what this was. And there is an aversion, this seems to me, and you can maybe speak to this more, Todd, being part of the aviation community, but it seems to me that the American authorities do not want to be put in a position to acknowledge that there's something flying around the skies, and some people report these things as demonstrating extraordinary technology, such as a, a, a hovering object shooting straight up through a cloud technology that we don't even have, they don't want to acknowledge that uh, they have no control over this. They don't know what it is. We don't know what it's going to do next. We don't know why people are seeing them. I mean, it would make sense to me that this is not something the government would like to acknowledge. Of course, but, but my point being, they have done it in other countries without there being any kind of social upheaval or panic or anything else. But in this country, it seems that this is not something that's in the cards. Uh, a bit of full disclosure for the audience. Uh, as many of you know from looking at my biography on my website and elsewhere, I did have a career in the Air Force, a short one, and part of that was spent at the National Security Agency where I had a top security clearance and was privy to some well, very small amount of intelligence relative to the total that was, that was out there. And, but one thing I did find out from that experience, that there is a need for secrecy, there is a need for security to protect the nation from threats uh, that are real. But uh, I don't see the rationale for maintaining this kind of secrecy over something which apparently is not uh, causing any uh, threat to the nation. There haven't been any uh, unknown objects blowing up cities or anything like that. And it's not that the people within the national security community are unintelligent. Some of the most intelligent people I've ever run into in government were inside that world. And if they were to see the data, if they were to see the information, they would be very uh, capable of making decisions as to whether or not it's a threat or not. But I can only guess that it's because of bureaucratic inertia or history or protecting careers or what have you that this kind of information isn't released. One does not have to reveal sources and methods in order to reveal the existence of something in the sky or something under the water or something in the environment that could cause uh, harm if we don't understand it. Basically, I'm mm -hmm. saying, if people know about it, if the organizations out there know about it, but there's no way of getting it out there to the public, perhaps some, some people inside the business should work on ways of getting that information outside. But it does need to come from within, I guess, from people who recognize that this, 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 this issue should be treated just like any other aviation issue. And, uh, but, but the three things you mentioned, bureaucratic inertia, history, and protecting careers are definitely what's, what our problem is here. So um, I've been working very hard to try and get the official 
world, the U.S. government, to, to set up a small agency or even just one staff person comparable to what we see in other countries to sort of be a point person for the issue. But there is a lot of difficulty in making that happen. I think uh, your point, Todd, you made earlier about um, it seems that NORA does monitor the skies and the U.S. Air Force, etc. They should they either had no clue about what was happening at Phoenix or they they did know something and were hiding it from us. And just to, to, to carry on with that a little bit, the, the uh, there was a, a actual class action lawsuit that was filed by witnesses of that. And they were trying to get information from the Department of Defense because they, they figured, what like what you just said, how could the Department of Defense, some branch within that huge bureaucracy or whatever you want to call it, not know about a gigantic object that spent an hour coasting around over Phoenix, over Arizona, not just Phoenix, but the whole state. So the Defense, the defense Department came back to the court and told the judge that they had no information about it. Now, do you think that's plausible? I mean, they, they, the, the case was basically shut down after the Defense Department said, well, we've looked and we don't have any information at all about this. Now, I think part of the problem is that people in the state of Arizona, therefore, feel how can we feel safe and protected by our government, whose job it is to keep us safe, when they know nothing about an event like this, a stunning event where some kind of object unexplained object, gigantic object was coasting over populated areas and low to the ground, too. By the way, this object was so large that even the wildest conspiracy theorists who think, oh, we have secret things going off on Area 51, nothing that even the conspiracy theorists surmise is going on at Area 51 is as large as this object that was spotted over Phoenix and other parts of Arizona. Right. And some of the witnesses estimated it to be a mile, a mile in length. And some of them also described it as so low that they felt they could, if they were to throw a rock up at it, they would hit it. They could see lattice work. They could see a lot of details underneath the object. Uh, one woman said she was, she got out of her car on the highway and she was looking at it. And she said if she had opened up a newspaper and held it up, she could not have blocked out the whole, I mean, it, was very, it couldn't have blocked it out. It was very, very large and low. So you, it is a mystifying question as to how the government or whoever is, is responsible for dealing with something like this within our government has no comment about it, has no knowledge about it, does no investigation about it. And even when a lawsuit is filed, doesn't come up with anything. And this, it's, these are citizens. These are citizens who are dealing with a frightening situation, who get absolutely no support and no feeling of that they're being protected. Well, do you have a comment on, on who, what you think really went on? I mean, do you think that they do know something and they didn't want to tell, say anything about it, or they, would, or they just uh, don't know anything about it and don't want to admit that? In my opinion, they know something about it because uh, that, this was a community, just speaking about Phoenix itself, this is a community that has uh, multiple defense contractors, uh, several military installations. So even if no one official saw it, there was very likely several people who were within the military-industrial complex, who saw this. Now, again, if there's no real structure to report it up the chain of command, maybe they don't, they don't have the ability to officially report it. But to say that the entirety of the U.S. defense industry, civilian and military, had no knowledge of this is impossible for me to believe. Mm -hmm. It's just a question of, does the bureaucracy that exists allow an extraordinary event like this 
to somehow or another be registered in the system. If the bureaucracy is such where this is not possible, then it says to me the bureaucracy should be changed. If, on the other mm -hmm. hand, they did know about it and they're hiding it, my question is why? What's the point? It's not Russian. It's not North Korean. It's not Al-Qaeda. It's not the narco-traficantes down south of the border. If it's none of those people and this thing didn't bomb us, why not tell us? It's a good question. Well, we don't have the answer to that. Well, what we do have, what you and I have and what everyone in the listening audience has, is a venue, a platform, where we can share these ideas and hopefully at least give someone an inkling of an idea to do something. And uh, with that, I'd like to uh, bring our conversation to a close. And Leslie Kane, of author and investigative journalist, we've had a wonderful time here, I think, and I do hope our audience uh, feels the same way. And again, we will have plenty of information at ufo.airsafe.com, contact information for Leslie and her website and her book, also uh, supplemental information from NARCAP and other places where you can submit reports. And one last suggestion. While, Leslie, you're holding out hope that the government might delegate a small team of people to look after this, I'm going to make another suggestion. I'm more of a uh, capitalist suggestion. There are a lot mm -hmm. of multimillionaires and billionaires out there. One would hope a few of them are listening to this show. Cleave off a little bit of your money. Have your own little team out there. But just make sure you share the information with the world. Come on. How many millions could it take to put together a very uh, competent team of volunteers, small paid staff, database of information, open up a website, let everybody come in and share what they have? If I had the Absolutely. millions, if I had the millions, yep. I'd do it. But if someone and I would too, I think that's the only barrier we have, actually, Todd. Because I, many scientists have approached me, people that are be willing to give time to this, and have suggested let's let's create our own group, let's create a civilian group. The issue is we need the millionaires and billionaires to jump in. Once again, Leslie, I thank you mightily for being with us here today, and I do hope we get a chance to work again. Thank you very much, and I'm just so appreciative that you are willing to incorporate this subject into your arena there, of, of, which is not one that normally deals with this kind of subject, and that you take it as seriously as you do. I, I think it's just really, really commendable, and I thank you so much for doing that. We thank you. And uh, once again, ufo.airsafe.com.